Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that Scaffold is supported in part by the Architecture Foundation, and it can now also be supported by you. Basically, there's no team behind Scaffold. I research, write, record, and edit every episode, and you're not going to believe this, but it takes around 20 hours to produce a single show. Scaffold is and always will be a passion project, but if you've enjoyed it and want to help, visit patreon.com forward slash scaffold to find out more. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash scaffold. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. This week features my conversation with the Irish architect Andrew Clancy, who together with Colin Moore founded Clancy Moore Architects in 2007. Andrew is also a colleague of mine at the Kingston School of Art, where he holds the title of Professor of Architecture. I met with Andrew at Kingston back in December of 2019, where we talked about, among other things, the relationships he sees between his work in teaching and in practice and the value of conversation in architecture as a means of holding divergent thoughts in play, allowing new and unexpected figures to take shape. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. What I'm most curious about yeah. Um, is understanding exactly what you're doing here. Yeah. And by here I mean at the Kingston School of Art, um, playing a part in directing the architecture program and I guess to a certain extent the curriculum as well. Yeah. Um, and what you're doing as an educator. Yeah. Who is also an architect. Yeah. And I think if we just start kind of in the middle, in the thick of that question, um, is this, like how many years have you been leading the architecture program? So I don't lead, um, I'm the professor and it's a kind of curious thing which is in Europe the professor would be, there'd be multiple professors in a university or in a school and in Ireland and the UK for whatever reason there tends to be just one or two and uh, I suppose it gives you, it's a different, it's a different role. So. In a school like Kingston, you're part of the philosophic leadership. And as a professor, your job is to sort of speak for and speak to the school. But also, I suppose, what's quite interesting about a professor is that you're not a line manager. You're not part of any hierarchy. You have no budgetary control. You have no ability to hire or to fire. So you're only as valuable as people find you, which I find quite compelling. So in a way, you have to be a couple of things for a school to be healthy. You have to be a mudguard protecting it from certain things. 
And then you have to be a kind of a, an irrigation system, in a way. Just making, talking to students, making time for people. Also, seeking out people who might be insecure. It tends to be some of the better people tend to undervalue themselves. So a lot of what you try and do is foster relationships where they might maybe come to teach, and that might be good for the discourse. So you lead simply by allowing people to be themselves and then making sure that the people in the building are aware that they're valuable to an extent, as much as you can, and then making sure that you're keeping an eye on what the ethos of the school is. And I came here because I really respected the ethos of the place, which was a school that understood that, of course, there's all kinds of amazing depth of thinking in architecture, but ultimately it's reposed in a built artifact. And this school is very much about that. And that and that's quite unusual in a UK context. And so I applied for the job because I wanted to be part of a conversation, which is that I didn't think I was going to get the job. And I just wanted to make sure that at least I'd put my hand up and that if the culture that had been here eventually got damaged because a different person took the job or something, at least I didn't sit to one side. And then I got offered the job, which was very surprising and really lovely. And Basically, since then, it's been a conversation. The school has gone through a lot of change. We've moved location. We've uh, had a lot of new people join the team, etc. And you've just become part of the evolving place now. I mean, I'm not really answering your question because you want to know about pedagogy and what my beliefs are about how well, you educate. We'll get there, so. Yeah. But what I'm curious about, I guess, in response to what you've just said is, what to you was the pre-existing culture of the school? Because it sounds like you were coming in with the attention of fostering and tending to that as opposed to uh, changing course or radically upheaving and redirecting things. Yeah, a colleague said that to me 18 months after I'd started work. He said, when are you going to start making the big changes? And I said, <laughs> name one person who's in the job that they were doing when I started. Mm. And there was nobody. Everybody's found new positions. Everybody's grown and changed. Some people have left. Some people have joined. I don't believe in the Etch-a-Sketch version where people come in and tear things up. I'm a contextualist as a practitioner. I believe in understanding the social contexts where I work. I value them above all else. A school is a social and physical context. You change it by being present. And it needed to change, but not radically. It needed to grow and be its... I suppose people also needed to find a new version of where they wanted to go. Some people didn't seem to be getting their fullest expression of their abilities. And as an outsider at the time, I could see that. And others, um, I suppose, were moving on from the place. And that's just a school. A school's always changing. It's an organism. And I just wanted to be part of, of that. And also to remind the school of what it was great at. You know, one of the things that is interesting about places that do things well is they tend to undervalue themselves, is that... So I'm very sceptical of the brands, the educational brands of architecture, the big-name schools, especially the schools that keep telling you that they're a big-name school. Because I don't think that is where you get the sensitivity of insight that you're going to get powerful work from. It seems to be all the places I found compelling architecture have been humble places, places that naturally have sort of undervalued themselves, and the students tend to be part of that. So also part of what I've been doing here is just reminding people why I get on a plane away from my family every week, because that's not easy, but you come here because it's great, what's here is great. And 
and that's sort of part of the job too. And part of that then is to not be the figurehead, do you know? Because that's also stifling. You're just a voice among many, and if that voice has currency, brilliant. And if it doesn't, or if people disagree with you, that's also useful. But at least you're there to, you're there to allow things to happen. You're a catalyst, I suppose. Do you know what I mean? And that with, if you, with you not there, or a different person in the job, those things would catalyze differently, if that makes sense. Mm. And I guess that's quite analogous to practice, because I think practice is a negotiation, and it's not some kind of high and mighty command and control thing. I know it looks that way. I know education sometimes looks that way. But that's really nonsense. Do you know what I mean? Um, so that's sort of a link. For me, they're sort of the same thing. I mean, it's different communities I'm speaking to when I'm speaking to practice and I'm speaking to, to an academic institution like this. But I like it because it's sort of very native with how I act, which is, yeah, I like a good conversation. And the nature of a conversation is you don't know where it's going to go. Mm. Um, that's exactly what thrills me about conversation as well. Um, just the, first of all, the urgency of the spoken word. Mm. And that one word after the next, you still have no idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, you're right. Like the, the context for conversation changes between um, the world of uh, academia uh, and the world of practice, which they're often for different reasons, uh, quite divided. And what I was hoping we could get into was how you bridge that gap as a practitioner, as a director of your own practice, along with Colin Moore, um, and as someone who has a hand in leading the direction of the architecture faculty here. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, you've taught for a long time now. 20 years, yeah. Uh, at, a, at a range of different schools. Yeah. And um, participating in the world of ideas in architecture seems like it's always been crucial to you and Colin. Yeah, really important. And so for you, is teaching and being involved with the school a part of just kind of satisfying that? Or how else do you instrumentalize uh, teaching back to practice? So that's a really big question and a really important question. So our practice started with this conversation, and we didn't even articulate it this way at the time. At the time, we were just trying to figure things out, but we, were, we always worked, we always made drawings, and we always, when we worked well, and there were times that we didn't work well together because we were just working out how we would work together, it was about finding things in each other's work that the other person had underestimated and hadn't even seen. And that sort of became a method and it was funny, years later I read Gadamer and he had this amazing thing which is that if you, have to, if you want to have a conversation about something you should, you should devalue the thing that you place on the table. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says here's an idea and what you would say if you want to have a conversation about this is here's everything that's problematic about that idea. And that allows the other person to empathetically find things, go well actually no, look at it this way, it's interesting. Whereas if you put an idea on the table and say this is amazing, this is the best idea, well, what's the point? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no onwardness from there. You're, you're, you're immediately setting an oppositional kind of argument, right? And I guess that became the method of the practice and it became the method of the teaching. And then, of course, the practice that we set up in 2007-ish, you know, a year afterwards, Ireland went into the deepest depression, I think, apart from the Greek crisis in recent European history that lasted for seven years. 
And of course, then the practice couldn't have survived without teaching. Queens in Belfast came looking for us, hired us. They were heading up a new program. We got really, I was running a course, incredibly young. And then that opened further doors to us and other things followed, like a visiting professorship to Aarhus and others. And people seemed to value what we were doing. And so the educational thing also became a way that we met people, that the profile of the practice and the ideas in the practice became known because we're not good at PR and we're not polemicists and we're not self-promoters. We're not that type of people. I don't devalue those things. It's just not naturally how we act. So teaching also became a way that the practice grew and found space. Um, and I think that, that those two things sort of are intri intrinsically linked. And then what I really enjoy about that is that we've always kind of empathetically sought to share that experience with our students. We've always been very open and quite confessional about that because I remember being in college and just being so confused by the edifice of architecture. This, it looked so perfect. And these people that we were admiring seemed so incredibly talented and erudite and impossibly so. And how could one ever be? And so, and it didn't seem to be that the journey by which they had become that was understandable, do you know what I mean? Like these buildings were amazing and the thinking behind them was amazing in the books that we were reading and the lectures that we saw. And the whole thing seemed incredibly scary. And actually then what we find is that it's, it's, it's a little bit different to that. It's like a walk or something, do you know what I mean? And actually there's stumbles and there's messes and there's successes that you don't understand at the time and there's all that kind of stuff. And it's life, it's the stuff of life. And so we're, we, we love sharing that with our students as well. And, and of course, a student will never judge you for those things. They're just super eager, do you know? They don't care that you messed up and you're telling them about a mistake you made. They're not, they don't think any less of you. In fact, they probably think a little bit more of you, maybe. So I like that kind of openness. It's a very, talking to students is a very supportive place. Mm. So it's a good conversation, both sides of the table. And, and fundamentally, that's why I like it, teaching, I mean. Mm -hmm. Kingston, yeah, is a different place again. I'm just thinking of that because the conversation here is different because there's an urgency and there's a kind of a plurality and a diversity of conversation here that isn't available in the places that I've taught before. And I find that really challenging, mm. that really interesting. And how do we respond to that? So there's a few points in there I kind of want to touch on now. Yeah. But, um, the first, I guess, is the approach you, t you take to um, seeing things. Yeah. Um, and how the act of seeing for you uh, has this kind of inherently redemptive aspect to it. Um, I could be wrong on that, but you're kind of looking a bit dubious. I'm not, I don't know about <laughs> redemptive, but go on. I'd like to know what you think. Okay, so you were teaching at Queen's University yeah. at one point, and um, out of the studios came um, these kind of pocketbooks. Yeah. One of which was called Stair Rooms. Yeah. The other that I found was called The Elaborated Window. Yeah. And uh, for the latter, you and Colm had written an introduction. Yeah. A brief introduction, um, kind of framing the interests of the studio. And you mentioned at one point the uh, art critic Lawrence Weschler. Yeah. In a book he'd written called seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees, yeah. which is about, it's like a biography of this Californian artist named Robert Irwin. Yeah. And now when I saw that, um, um, 
I kind of lit up because I love Lawrence Weschler. Yeah, he's a great writer. He's amazing. He's an art critic who, um, f who finds unconventional ways of recognizing um, correlations between things that you would otherwise assume were totally unrelated. Um, and it's a kind of criticism that I find very positive. And maybe that's why I said redemptive. Now I understand why you say that. Yeah. I remember reading that book and just a whole load of lights going on. Uh -huh. That, I mean, I knew Robert Irwin's work in the later period, the architectural pieces, and they, they were part of this perfected world of, that I didn't understand. And then here's this critic that shows you how he goes from making marks on canvas and critically thinking about those marks and evolving to elaborate wall works to uh, sculptural forms that are almost invisible to becoming background, becoming architecture and eventually becoming a gardener. And what he does so incredibly is that the stylistic, uh, the stylistic variation, which would be superficially the important thing to a critic, to him is the symptom of a singular line of inquiry. And, and that really was compelling. And particularly when we were looking at work that was so different to the work that we were interested in. Like, you know, you come out of a context and there's work that you're trained to think is, in, you know, in inverted commas, good, and other work that's in inverted commas, bad. And you sort of understand the shape of those arguments, but it tends to be grounded in style, or at least it was. And we understood immediately we started to practice because you could do whatever you wanted to do. There was no rules, there was nothing. You could literally do whatever it wa you wanted. Was. So it was a personal ethical position that you had to form. So therefore, the style was irrelevant. The only thing that was important was how you engaged with the question, and what the question was. And it seemed to us that the moments that were transformative and, to use your word, redemptive of situations were where somehow in the mess you find a way of seeing things that before you hadn't seen before, and that became the foothold or the thing that took the project forward. And, and that works with teaching too. And those books that we made were, I mean, they were really important for the practice, and it was a long time before Kohlhaas did his Elements of Architecture, and we would disagree completely with how he had looked at the Elements of Architecture. We took what we call spatial curtilages, which were elements, sure, like stairs and windows, but we sought to examine them in their spatial and cultural curtilage. And we made models, or the, the students were just given a situation and they were said, you need to make a model sufficient to describe the spatial curtilage of this archetype and situate that archetype. And then we'd have this room of 50 of these things, beautifully modeled, beautifully photographed. And you didn't know when they were made, the dates were not present, that was not there, but they would describe what the events happened in that space and what happened in it and how people moved through it. And it was just a, a day where everything was possible. History was present and the future was present. And it was all architecture and it was all seeing. And what we found amazing was the excitement with which students would talk about and the urgency with which they would engage with those work. It wasn't Ronchamp anymore. It was just how that curve, you know, might remind them of something in this kind of side space of Borromini because the Borromini model is just over there. And suddenly we found a way that history kind of collapsed into a present tense sensibility that students could then navigate. And what was really interesting in that was that we found ways that we could tease out the student's own ethical position because you saw how they intuitively were looking at things. And so you began to go, isn't that interesting? You see that that way. 
you see this as collage, whereas your colleague over here, she sees this as synthesis. And both of your positions are correct, but in that observation, in that dissonance, there's also a conversation about how you two might practice differently to one another and legitimately pursue the sincerity of those questions. So those exercises that we did in Queens were really formative and they came straight out of talking about the, the, the critical text on Irwin and how that text helped us see Irwin and then by empathy see ourselves mm. and see the world of architecture. Architecturally you're trained to see things a certain way necessarily and the truth is always more nuanced and more compromised mm. and more ambiguous. Yeah, it sounds like there's a frustration here with the prescription or the format for thinking about and talking about architecture. Yes. And um, a frustration with, um, I think, the aversion people have to taking risks and seeing things differently or finding value in what is not necessarily a consensus um, viewpoint on a building or an architect or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and in that way, I guess, like you're interested in vulnerability. Yeah. Um, which comes through a lot in um, um, the interview project that you coordinate, the Register podcast. Yeah. Um, which is almost in a way identical to what I'm doing with Scaffold, except it's, it's cited at the university and tied to a lecture series. Yeah. And involves uh, multiple interviewers. But there is an interest in biography and the context of practice and the context of, of building and design um, that you don't often get um, when someone stands up to speak about their work. And you can't, when you stand up to speak, tell the people about the fort near where you grew up. It, 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 the format doesn't work for it. You, you know, you change as a person when you stand in front of a room of people. And yeah, so the, the con the, the, that, that interview project started, it's a nice way of describing it, just because very quickly when I came to Kingston, I realized so many of our students were from non-conventional backgrounds in architecture, which is wonderful. It's what made the school so great. And that meant most of them had to travel big distances, like two hours. and they didn't have huge amounts of resources, and they, most of them had second jobs. And so all the playtime I had of just sitting in the library and pulling random bullshit off shelves and thinking it was wonderful and then finding that it wasn't, isn't available. That free, unprogrammed, non-productive time is not available to students today in the way that it was when I did it. Um, and so we just said, well, let's just record a chat with the people who come to the school and put it out. The, and the easiest way to connect with our students was podcasts, because it was free to do it, and the university systems didn't allow you to work off-site, and they needed, you know, it doesn't matter. So it was just a way of getting the students who couldn't go to the lectures to have a connection with these people. And then it started to get some legs, and then we started to go, actually, it was a way of giving a voice to this place, that everybody knew Kingston was a great school, but nobody really knew what they talked about here. And a bit like those books in Queens where the argument to the students was you put that book on the table of anybody you want to work with and the chances are they'll give you a job. Uh, the podcast and the books that are about to come out and other things that are coming out from the school under the register imprint is a way of activating the voice of the school. 
and it is a voice concerned with vulnerability and it is a, a voice concerned with uh, marginal voices. And understanding that there's a canon in architecture and understanding that we have to add to that, we have to look at it in different ways and we have to be aware of different uh, uh, cultural backgrounds as we augment that, but at the, at there's a heartbeat of architecture that's serious and rigorous that we're continually adding to as we change our perspectives on the world, but that ultimately at the heart of it, if you don't see the vulnerability in the work and if you can't make an empathetic connection with something, even something as perfect as the Parthenon, then then there's no in for you. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'm really interested in people wearing architecture. Do you know what I mean? That it's not something that's, that it's not this thing on the table over there. That they're, even from the very start, they're comfortable with the discourse of architecture, that there's nothing that they're scared to say. That they don't mind putting up their hand at the end of the lecture and saying, you know, why did you express the beams and the whatever, mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of things that happen in architecture, and I don't know why, to do with the fear where certain people don't say certain things. They don't say the blindingly obvious often. I mean, there's a joke in architecture conversations about the lecture question, like the obtuse, complex question, so complex. And I love those questions only because in it I see mapped the insecurity of the questioner, so desperate to hide the obvious question with a portrayal of their intelligence. And you go, don't worry, I've never met a stupid architect. So we're all intelligent. So you can ask it really dumbly. You can ask why the wall is green. You know, you can ask, you know, you can ask those questions. Sometimes they're the only question. And I, I, think that, I think that that's part of it. And I think it's a nice observation that it is vulnerability because that sort of is cited in a text that I wrote about typology called The Casual Buttress, which was a really kind of, you know, in Ireland we complain a lot about a lot of things, but there's this amazing body called the Arts Council and they give money to artists, but they also give sometimes money to architects, young architects, to help them support their careers at critical times and Clancymore wouldn't exist without the Arts Council. We got a couple of grants of, you know, several thousand euros. And one of them was this thing called the Kevin Kieran Awards, which just let you go off and just look at things and think about things and make a project about it. Maybe we should try to unpack that essay, The Casual Buttress. Um, as a way of maybe framing an interest that you'd established early on in your kind of critical career yeah. that is carried through to your practice and teaching today. Yeah. So what is The Casual Buttress? Casual Buttress is a, an essay that I made like under this Arts Council grant and it was in relation to a photo I found in an archive in the Museum of Country Life in Mayo and it came after several months of going through many archives and it's a photograph by an architect called Robin Walker uh, taken as a student in 1943 during World War II and he was looking at cottages in Ireland as part of formal studies I think at the end of his first year or second year and it's just in this bundle of papers of plans of cottages and Basically, I was drawn to the photograph only out of desperation of having found nothing. I'd, I'd gone through these archives looking for a tectonic reasoning into architecture. We'd just finished a house in the quarry which was based on traditional Irish stave architecture and the pitch to the Arts Council was we found a language in prehistoric stave architecture through archaeological remains that has liberated this building for us. I'm going to go through more archives and find out more tectonic insights that can change us. And I thought I was looking for terribly practical things like rammed earth construction and you know, bog oak as roof rafters, whatever. 
Anyway, I wasn't finding those things. And I just found this photograph and I just noticed that down the bottom Robin had scribbled his name and I just took a picture of the photograph just for no other reason than there was a connection between me and an architect I'd never met but who I'd admired and that he'd taken this picture. And I just sat and started, I said, I'm going to write an essay about it. And like what's quite interesting with me is, you know, it's like you said earlier on, stuff just falls out of your mouth. And I was critting with Tom DePuer in Queens the next week and he said, how are you getting on with the Kevin Kieran thing? And I said, you know, it's... I th I'm really not getting anywhere. I'm putting loads of work in, but I'm not, I'm not finding anything. But I think I'm going to write this essay about a buttress. And it was the first time I said buttress. And he said, oh, what's the buttress like? And I said, well, it's casual. And I just was doing it to be pithy. But the name came. And then I sat down with that photograph the next weekend, and I started to write about the buttress that was casual. And I only said casual because they were off-center on the gable. But I began to then tell the story about how I'd seen the photograph. And what I saw was a cottage. And then I saw that they had two buttresses in front of it. And I was trained to see the cottage first because of typology and architecture and the form of it. And the, the buttresses were additions in my view. And then I looked at more and more cottages and I knew them from my childhood everywhere. They all have buttresses. And I realized it's kind of strange that they all have buttresses, but that doesn't appear in the type drawings because the type drawings are, you make hundreds of surveys of found vernacular types and then you make a perfected type, which you call the type. And that isn't a real thing. It's a prototype of all the found conditions in the field. It's quite a strange thing to do, but we do it in architecture a lot. And actually, in this examination, I said, well, if it's about commonalities to a building form, the buttress is common to most. Why isn't it in the type? And it's not in the type because it's changed its location on every building. And it changed its location because the site is different. The ground fails in different ways, or the roof fails in particular ways, or the earth doesn't bind together appropriately. And I saw in this, this amazing moment where type, which is to do with universal knowledge and things which can be kind of formally exchanged in that kind of abstract way, was then being connected intrinsically to site via a different thing, this buttress. And so the casual buttress is a metaphor for the relationship between, I suppose, purity and context. And what I say is that if the cottage speaks about a society and speaks about uh, exchanges of knowledge to do with how a family might live and what the proper way to do things are and what society says you should do, the buttress is about the individual act of care or maintenance and the specific person who lived there and their story. And actually, in a, in a moment, you can see a buttress and a cottage, and you can make an empathetic connection with the point where the buttress was added, the point where the wall started to go. Maybe it even happened during construction and there's a decision to add a buttress. Mm. And that feels like, that felt like a way into architecture for me in a very deep way, which is that here we can talk about the history of architecture and we can engage with a huge wealth of reference bases as we do in Clancy Moore and we love it. But we can also talk about the specifics of our clients and the specifics of our builders and the nature of when a beam fails. And, and actually it speaks about things which are open and garrulous and not scared of inflection and that you can put your finger into an idea and it stays the same. The type of the cottage isn't broken by the buttress. In fact, the brittle type drawings of the cottage meant that that so-called vernacular architecture became unusable because it made a building, it, it said that all the architectural knowledge present in this cottage is in its shape, three-room cottage, whatever. 
And of course, society moves on. We can't make three-room cottages anymore. Society doesn't live that way anymore. But actually, the buttress talks about a different thing, which is to do with the connection between site and these imported types. And actually, that's a much more usable thing. It's not literally usable. It's metaphorically useful that you're always looking for this. And I suppose it's why things like the vernacular became very difficult for architecture to absorb. And that's why architecture, as it grows, the things it's allowed to look at always adds these kind of prefixes, which is terrible, you know, like vernacular or socially engaged or look, you, whatever. Like all architecture is socially engaged. I know there's more or less variations of that. But I don't like those prefixes. I always reject them. I think architecture is architecture, and it's what you find in it. And in that moment, I found something that has allowed me to see, you know, the work of Bernini in you, and to see the work of Shinohara in you, and to see the work of Khan in you, like in this looking at something terribly prosaic and ordinary. to the formation of Clancy Moore. Yeah. And I guess, um, in a way, the practice is still young. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. And I'm so, 42, Matthew, and I'm apparently still young. Yeah. But I guess we're all still in this process of formation. Yeah. And you mentioned figures like Shinohara. Yeah. Um, and I know that you know, writers do this as much as architects. We quote or we reference, or we kind of make ourselves in the image of our idols to try, kind of try it on for size. You were talking about wearing architecture. Yeah. Um, and I want to understand a bit about who you were trying on and who you're trying on now in order to understand what kind of architecture you and Colm are, are making. Okay, let's start with the chronology there, right? Which is you start practice and <laughs> we, we had some very odd jobs. We had jobs that had been rejected by a couple of different architects or which had been told to the clients were impossible to do. One was a house in a quarry where nobody had got permission in that valley for 40 years and another one was this church that needed a new porch and they only had 10,000 euros or something like that and the best idea that an architect had offered them had been a curtain or something, you know, just ridiculous thing. And we started with the high things. like. We were, I remember we, for the church, we were really compelled by something David Ajay had done, and we were looking at that, but it proved far too expensive. And with the quarry, we were really compelled by something um, that uh, Ruini Shuaza had done. Uh, just, I don't know why some of his work is given his own name and some is Sana, but it was a project that he'd done on his own. And that was also impossible. And both of those projects were exercises in us going through our understanding of what we were fascinated by and finding that it was far too brittle for the contingencies of where we needed to work. And what happened with both those projects is the same person, a boat builder, offered us an economic way to make buildings that were robust but, and cheap, but had to be made in ways that were not of our thinking. He was basically sitting down with us and going, look, you know, if you're going to do it, you should really do it this way, you need to think this way about it. And so suddenly there's this other voice in the room and 
And then the architecture just became what it became in a really weird way. And it was quite scary, actually. Like the, 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 with the church, we were mocking it up on site because we, it could only be made in certain spans and this form evolved. It was quite a bombastic form. We weren't sure about it. We thought it would be recessive, but it looked quite dramatic on plan. We were very worried about it, so we were netting it up on site with string. And we found that we had all of the dimensions wrong because we'd done them through orthographic projection, not compensating for perspective. So we'd respect the cornice lines of the church. We needed to break those for it to sit in. All the standard learnings, but the, the abstract knowledge of architecture wouldn't allow you to make those adjustments. And with the quarry, it was the same. I mean, our clients will laugh about it. The number of times was us up there with blue rope and just going, this is, how high is it? Like that high, really? Is it that high? And constantly trying to understand what these things were. And you know, there was a point even, the plan evolved because of a planning constraint and a light constraint. And we never showed that plan to anybody for a few years because we were embarrassed about it. It looked like an X. So we, it looked like we were some kind of graphic architects from, from Denmark or something. And we weren't. We were interested in something else. But it ended up that way through a lot of contingencies to do with repet repetition, the type of timber-to-timber -timber joints that our CAD-CAM router was able to make, all this kind of stuff that you don't need to be aware of or worry about. And, and so we had these two buildings, and they were not at all alike and they were not at all like something that we understood. And that was not by design. It was by just getting through the thicket of it. And we'd started out by trying things out. And then when we were starting, they were starting to come together. They were moving in particular ways and we started to adopt, like the interior of the quarry was supposed to be like the Wittgenstein house. It was supposed to be super abstract. So we got on board with this kind of heavily textural timber wrought work on the outside. The inside was supposed to be really pure and of course the timber was moving hugely because it was a very difficult site so the timber was soaking up a lot of water and it was all moving so we had to do linings and skirtings and architraves and then we started to put all those together and we were really getting into that and we were looking at work by others like obviously Florian Beigel and others that we were looking at that gave us permission to think this way and some early work by DRDH that you know just things that we were examining and we began to find figuration in those things, and that became a really powerful moment. And yeah, then a couple of things happened which were really interesting. The first was that people liked those buildings, and we were started to get clients who were encouraging us to do things like those buildings. And then the recession came and killed all that work, it just all died. And then the second thing happened was that uh, Alice Woodman came over to write about the quarry about a year after, maybe more after it had been finished. And he wrote this essay, and in it, at the end, he just says that there, he could see that there was a desire towards purity in a lot of our other projects, this unbuilt work that he'd seen. Like there was these very pure plan types, highly, highly refined, classically derived modernist forms, quite analogous to certain types of autonomous Swiss architecture. And he was saying it's interesting that in their body of thinking, this project's an anomaly because it seems to be to do with the, the kind of command of multiple contingencies as opposed to the search for purity that the other work shows. And it, it's probably an anomaly in their work, but it deserves to be considered a compelling one. And it was an interesting one because what he said was so incredibly true and truthful. Um, I think we need to... Oh, really? Is there a class happening here? What time yeah, I think we need to stop. Oh, okay. I'm so um, sorry. No, here, I'm just going to stop that. Um, we can resume it, but I don't know. Elmer is looking in the wall. And the roof All right. Outside.
No, it's good. Oh, we're good. Okay. Sorry, no. No problem. I'm just panicking because. Yeah, yeah. Um, we. I guess we should try and, and finish up now. Finish anyway. Soon, yeah. um, anyway, he just set this thing to do with um, multiple contingencies, and we found in that a truth which was um, quite challenging. And then another thing happened, which is worth saying, is that we started to do this PhD by practice a few years later. And at the time, we'd been invited to give lectures in Switzerland about the work and this kind of thing. And we were telling the story as you would tell the story of architecture in a lecture. And it all felt so incredibly pat. You know, you've got 30 minutes to explain a project that took years to do, and you make this truth, it is a truth, but it's so edited that it looks like you were in command of the process, even though the presentation was one to do with finding this thing. Uh -huh. And we realized that, well, we didn't quite realize it, but when we made those lectures, we realized that it was forcing us back into a kind of idea about purity, because you could describe it in half an hour and make it clear to yourself and to another person how it happened, that there was a chance that we would get caught again in this style. It was just a different style to where we'd started from. Mm. And then with the PhD by practice, we found a kind of reflective technique which allowed us to actually realize, no, 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 no. The style is just how it turned out. And, and how it turned out was appropriate to the site. And it was the, it was the result of a sensibility which we discovered by accident, like two people basically clinging together in this mess, because we were out of our depth, you know, we were doing our best. It turned out really well, technically, but the technical side of that job was an incredible learning experience for us. Mm. And how it turned out isn't the practice, because we didn't know that at the start, but the journey was, and that was why we did it. And that technique now means that, who are we wearing, who are we looking at now, who are we not? Like, you know, people who work in the office will laugh like we're continually pulling books off shelves. We look at everybody from Marais. At the moment, I'm just thinking of a small house, essentially we're looking at Marais a lot. We're looking at Rivas, Portalupi. We're looking at like some really beautiful uh, early houses by Gary, Caesars, those early projects very like. So we sort of use each project in a way to help us tell the story of architecture to ourselves and to our clients. The briefs that we get are terribly ordinary things. And it, they're, they're things which are probably the biggest investment that that person's going to make, like their house extension or whatever. And you know, it's 150,000 euros or whatever it is, a huge amount of money. And so it's not our business to force them into a box. One of the things we found with this technique is that we're not scared of them changing the design at all. And we're very confessional with the clients about what's happening. And if they say things, even at the moment where we, they say it to us, we might reject it initially. It goes around in the office and we always find there's a truth in what they're saying. Like definitely they were spot on about a lot of things. And so they become kind of not, it's, it's a complicated thing. It's, 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 we like this technique because it seems to allow us to navigate our situation. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so just as an aside, how much more time do you have? I have another 10 minutes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, questions I want to touch on are, are kind of Irishness. Yeah. In terms of um, your affiliations to the country you grew up in and what it means to be an Irish architect practicing both there and teaching abroad. Um, and another thing I want to talk about at some point uh, is the PhD 
practice. By practice program and why you decided to do that and what kind of value that has for you um, and how that's changed um, the way you practice. The PhD by practice happened because this guy called Leon van Skyke came up to Queen's to meet a couple of their professors and we knew nothing about it. And at the end of the day, Michael McGarry, who was the professor, just said to Leon, don't take the train, get a lift with Colm and Andrew. I mean, he was putting something in motion. Yeah. And so we drove Leon from Belfast to Dublin two hours, and we stopped off on the way at a kind of uh, an early medieval monastery, and we talked about architecture. And by the end of it, he'd convinced us to go over to Ghent to this PhD by practice seminar, where we made a 20-minute presentation. And we had a conversation for 40 minutes with the audience and with them, and they basically were unpicking the work, not critically, not, not negatively, but critically as in the point of sharpness. Mm. And, you know, we were just hooked mm. by that. And it produced a thing where we could talk about our work jointly in these forums every six months, or occasionally Colin would present separately to me, and we would get to see and hear each other present. So you got space to hear each other say things that were perhaps harder to say face-to-face -face or in different situations. Sounds very therapeutic. Yeah, like cre creativity necessarily, like it's not a, yeah, it's not anything to be anyway uh, complicated about, it is. It's like creativity, I think, necess necessarily comes with frustrations, and it crosses over into emotional worlds. And that side of it is essential, I think, if you're going to have a long-term working relationship and a friendship with people that makes things. But then also, and the reason we did it wasn't for the therapeutics aspects of it, it was to do with actually making the ground of the practice more explicit to ourselves. And the ground that we basically established was one of conversation and figures. The conversation exists to hold multiple divergent thoughts in play all the time in a way that a drawing or a model can't, because you need to resolve them to have them manifest beautifully in those things. And then, so we've got lots of drawings and models, and then the conversation binds those unlike things together. And then what we look for is these things we call figures, which are moments where, in those contradictions, there's a congruence, and something becomes apparently necessary. So, classic one in the Portobello warehouse houses, they didn't have a big floor to ceiling heights, we couldn't change the exterior because of all these other issues. We had to insulate it so we poured the new screen on top of the old floor, so the floor had to be super thin, which meant it had a tiny span, super small span. But we knew we wanted to make these kind of quite monumental spaces just for the clarity of the thing, and so all the columns and the stairs ended up being having to do the job and having to be where they were because of these contradictions. And then, combined with those, were questions of the clients to do with wanting open plan, wanting privacy, and so the figures, these columns and things, became elements which we could divide and link spaces together, a choreo choreographed thing. And so that's the big thing about the PhD, was that those kind of techniques, which is, that's a very simple project, but it allowed us to do that game, which is a budget and tectonic game and a structural game and all the technical things, and it deals with regulation and fire laws and all that stuff and allows us to talk about the history of architecture. So you can play with Michelangelo over here, you can talk about uh, Venturi, or you can talk about whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. But the point about it is, is they become the means by which references matter to us because they allow us to connect with deep lineages of thinking. They've done all the hard work for you to make that discovery, and then you go, that really, really allows us to think about this in this way. So in this armature, the figures are the place where all of those things cohere. Mm. And and they are literally sometimes figurative. Mm. And then the Irishness thing, sorry, we've probably gone on too long, but the Irishness thing is an interesting question because 
I don't know. I'm like my family would have a deep history in, say, Irish nationalism, like back in the War of Independence and the uh, the um, the Land War. Uh, like, you know, effectively, like my mother is right now in New York because she's been researching her grandfather, which would have been the Sinn Féin envoy to New York during the War of Independence, and he would have raised all the money that was funding the war and all that kind of stuff. So we have a deep history in the, na in the nature of Irish nationalism and understanding of it, but we're not nationalists in that sense. Like, my parents were very involved in the peace process, and they would have always made the point that the idea of a united Ireland, for instance, is a colonial concept only the British saw it as one island because if you're a conquering force of course it's a single place but of course to Irish people before that it had been multiple kingdoms and it's much more natural to think about Ireland as multiple identities within one island and so, 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 so in that there was a kind of conversation about plurality within the country and so I've never really understood Irishness in the sense of national territorial identity and I'm skeptical about the nation state and I, I watch what's happening here in Britain with interest is all I say. I find it interesting what's happening here. And so there's that side of being Irish which is it always felt like being a place to be connected to somewhere else. That Ireland got its valency through its conversations elsewhere and that there was a type of conversation possible in Ireland which was different but not better or worse, a different way of looking at things. And so the conversation was always one to do with that exchange. Ironically, I didn't get to go on a plane until I was in college and to see these other places, but that was the conversation. And in truth, that's how we see it in architecture, which is that there is no Irish style, and I don't really think that there is an Irish tectonic, but there is a space for a particular type of plural conversation in Ireland one that uses multiple engagements with the history of architecture that comes from our slightly marginal location. And I was having a debate with Shelley McNamara about this, and she goes, Andrew, we're not peripheral. And I said, oh, I felt peripheral growing up. You know, I don't know. Maybe we're not. You don't feel it. I feel it. But what it did do is you were terribly curious as a student because you were going, well, we're not from, some, we're not from anywhere that matters. And over there is where matters. And actually, over there seems to matter too, and over there. And so you were constantly just voraciously reading and looking at everything, with really not knowing what you were looking for. But what it does mean is that you tend to find a huge reference base in Irish practice, mm. and one that's not generally, now I know all the names I've mentioned are quite orthodox figures, but there's not, they don't easily package into the boxes that they're put in elsewhere. And that's what I sort of think might be of use and of interest to the world at the moment, which is that those references are being driven out with some rigor in different ways by different people, and it's allowing architects to act with territorial intent, with great sincerity, and with no attempt for cynicism or anything like that. It's, it's, it's a pure thing, like it's a kind of a sincere, naive kind of belief in architecture and in the discipline as having something to say about a particular place and a particular group of people and also having a legitimate reading of its own autonomy as a discipline. And all those things are not, they don't contradict one another if you do it right. Mm. And so there is something there about being an Irish architect at the moment which is uh, pleasurable because 
I think that as the world moves to being one where people do more and more work in fabric and less and less monument and there's more and more contingencies and we're more aware of the plurality of the world, that kind of curiosity and that sincerity is useful right now. The Irishness that I value in that really is, is this thing to do with turning the idea over and a slight irreverence as you do it that the answers aren't what you expect and it's not about portraying how knowledgeable you are or how intelligent you are, it's just about whether the conversation's worth having. Is it pleasurable? And, and what's nice about that is that you find, you know, anybody who comes to the country, it's, it is not an Irish thing at all. What's quite nice about it, I think, is that a lot of our friends, like they're not, they weren't born in Ireland, they're Irish now, but it's a conversation that's super easy to learn once you've once you've realised that's how you do it, oh, it's okay to just say this and to look at it this way and then to make work like this. So I also like it because it, it feels open. Mm. Now, whether the country of Ireland is open or not is a different question. I think we've got lots of deep-seated problems that we need to resolve. But culturally, at its heart, I, I find it's curious before it's judgmental. It's irreverent before it's ponderous. And it's scholarly. And and I like that. And I don't think that's unique to Ireland. But it's what I associate with Ireland right now mm -hmm. in my discipline. And it's probably what I enjoy most about it. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. That was good fun. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce this show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Dorothy Ashby. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Andrew Clancy and to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.